The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So first let's begin by just taking a few minutes at least, see if people want to reflect on or ask questions about this kind of contemplation. Next week we'll contemplate Dhamma or Dharma, and the third week we'll directly contemplate Sangha. And as many of you know, um, a lot of times we you know, get stuck really in the idea that meditation is about directing our attention to the breath or something like that. But meditation as a practice is quite rich and it involves a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of teachings on using that meditation time to contemplate themes. It's basically the mind picking up a particular lens to use to be intimate with the present moment. But there are many lenses we can use or frames that we can use to connect with the present moment. And so tonight we use the frame of the Buddha We contemplated Buddha. What is meant by this awakenedness, this awakened quality of the mind? What is the Buddha pointing to with the teachings, the words, the stories? And we have some clues, like I mentioned during the guided meditation. It's here and now. It remains unstained, even when we're being a bad meditator. It's trustworthy healing in that spiritual sense or releasing. So comments and questions about the guided, guided meditation before we go on. Um, I'm Andrew. Um, a, a big focus of my practice lately has been sort of investigating the the process, what the um, the emptiness book talks about is like selfing. The, the, the emptiness book that you're mm-hmm. using for the Sunday group talks, it call, talks about as selfing. And uh, just uh, like a good example, what, what you said at the half day retreat about like even just the idea, like I live in Minneapolis and the the clinging that uh, comes in around that. And I've just been trying to get interested in that and all of the ways that or uh, all the things that I cling to about uh, who I am or where I am or where I'm going. And it's just so funny how... Uh, sort of sneaky and insidious that process can be because I was uh, during that sit I was feeling like pretty relaxed and stable and then you said something about uh, it's not about like focusing or knowing it's just about being present and there was like this thought of like recognition of like oh yeah I felt that and then all of a sudden there it is and then this this idea of uh, that I I know that or I get that (laughs) getting in the way of practicing it in that moment. I just thought that was kind of ironic and a little bit funny in a way. Yeah. Because if I understood you correctly, Andrew, one question, one interesting question, because, you know, a contemplation, when we're using a Dharma theme to uh, contemplate the way things are, there needs to be a lot of creativity it needs to be a dynamic process. If we're just sort of re- repeating, you know, looking in the same way, we tend, you know, we tend not to see anything new or anything that, uh, yeah, we haven't seen before. So, um, let's see if I can get back where I was. <coughs> it's like. Uh, asking questions that sort of break the way the mind is, has a tendency to look at the mind. So for example, a lot of the times we get in the habit of sort of really being on the lookout and contemplating the hindrances, like what is arising to disturb the mind. Instead of, for example, just as an example, noticing that space between when one hindrance ends but before the next hindrance begins. Or what remains undisturbed even though my mind, there are a lot of hindrances hindering the mind. 
Like, is the mind, uh, is there something that's here and now that isn't disturbed by still being a bad meditator or, you know, not having reached the end of my practice? Um, when you said to find the Buddha, I equate that with sort of kind of a channeling kind of thing. And I have been visited by kind of other beings. And it's often, uh, you have to ask, but it can't be demanded. And uh, I have seen the Buddha at Liberation Park. What The Buddha that's there started moving. And um, there are often things out of the corner of the eye or an energetic presence that isn't exactly yours. And so I really welcome this kind of inspiration because some of us actually, our minds work that way. And um, it just, you're right when you say it, it isn't a thought, you can't do it, but it's just a receptivity to the potential of it being there. So one thing that helps me would be to say, is the Buddha here now? And if the Buddha is here, where in my body is he or she? And usually that would begin a deeper exploration of what's uh, physically or energetically around. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly what I was pointing to in the instruction. Mm -mm. But... The, the important thing is just to stay interested and not to draw conclusions because there are a lot of energetic, interesting energetic mental experiences that happen, right? But they tend to come and go. So we're interested in something that, as a refuge, I'm not interested in something that comes and goes. I mean, just from my own this ordinary egoic place, right? Like... I want something that makes this already okay, right? That makes being sort of an ordinary guy with an ordinary mind and, you know, I want something that uh, releases my need to find anything, to get anywhere, to become anybody. That's what I'm looking for. That's, that's the kind of refuge I'm interested in. And if it's, Available, it would be available. That kind of refuge would be available in any moment, right? So it's not like a special energetic or mental experience, as nice as they can be, and they can feel quite liberating because when you have a experience that's kind of out of the box, it liberates the mind from whatever it thought the box was, right? So whenever we have some kind of altered state experience or a really good set or whatever it might be, a lot of energy moves. And so I'm not saying that those experiences aren't useful, but they can be, they can be both useful and they can be confusing for people because people make them more than what they are. And then in subtle ways, in the same way someone obsessed with wealth is always kind of strategizing about getting more money. Somebody who has access to interesting, subtle experiences, their whole life can be about having more of those interesting, subtle experiences. And it's just a, it's the same greed, just getting acted out on a more subtle level than sort of having a lot of money or having a lot of power or having you know whatever it is um, that people might pursue. Yeah, thanks, Anne, for sharing. Good luck, yeah. Okay. Hi, I just was wondering um, if you could clarify when you were saying that there was um, there's something present there, um, even when you're a quote-unquote bad meditator. And what I'm understanding you to say is the bad meditation or when we get caught up in some thoughts of, of greed or aversion um, I mean, I know when I get caught up in that and then I recognize, oh, that's what I'm caught up in. I'm, I'm able to come back to that. Are you saying just having the faith that it's there, even though we're completely distracted by the thought of whatever, whatever it is that kind of took over, that it's a constant and it's, 
and it's always there, and that's the faith that we have in the refuge. Or you can even ask yourself, is that true for you in your experience? Like, um, when you are being a bad meditator, I am being sort of funny when I use that phrase, but people know what I mean. You know, when my mind is distracted, that's why the space of the present moment as a symbol or a holder or as a support for this contemplation can be useful, the space of the present moment. Because we know, like, even though there are moments when the mind being more balanced, stable, the awareness more stable, there's a real direct, intuitive sense of the space of the present moment. But when I'm lost in some obsessive thought pattern, I've totally forgotten. I'm not aware of the space of the present moment. But does the space of the present moment disappear in those moments? Or is it there? I mean, I'm just, I'm not asking for an answer, but you see, it's like uh, our study will reveal something about it, like that it's always there, that it doesn't get stained, that it's dependable, right? It's dependable, and we can't ruin it. You know, try as we might, we can't ruin it. And that's just a very interesting thing. You could try to ruin it and see if you can. (laughs) You know, can we, and can we color it even? That's what I mean by ruining it. Like, can we color affect this, you know, it's, you want to be a little careful putting qualities, this open space, this peaceful space, this empty space, empty of problem space. Can we shape it or move it or change it or ruin it? Or and, and so then it just, that just sharpens the contemplation because then, you know, the mind's just doing what the mind is going to do sometimes clear, sometimes distracted, sometimes, you know, clear expression of greed, anger, and delusion is happening. But we're also, because of the contemplation, right, on purpose, we're practicing staying interested in the Buddha, in the space, the empty, open, unstainable, peaceful space of here and now. And... The question is, is that contemplation skillful or useful? Does the mind learn something doing that kind of contemplation on what we call Buddha? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Claire. Um, I was just realizing that when I bring mindfulness to experiences that are relatively pleasant experiences... Um, it kind of, it, it feels like without directly asking myself this question, but it, I am kind of asking myself in a way, like, is this a refuge? And, and a lot of times I, I see that it is, or it feels like it is. But when I bring mindfulness to kind of a stressful situation, it's more like I'm asking myself the, the question you ask a lot, can this be Okay but not, is this a refuge? And it feels like asking that, asking the first question, is this a refuge? Like that, it it feels like far away or something. Like I'm not close to being at a place where I can ask, is this a refuge in a stressful situation? And, you know, it's helpful, you know, of course, just to ask, can this be okay? And, And that brings you know, a lot of peace to the situation. Mm-hmm. But I just wondered if you could speak to that. I mean, it feels really far away, like when something stressful or challenging or, you know, the hindrances are present, it's like, no, it's not a refuge right now. It feels bad, but at least it can be okay, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good, Claire, because that sort of investigation is what clarifies the nature of the mind. And uh, the only thing I would add as you continue sort of noticing what you're noticing is that when you do take pleasant experience as a refuge and it is a temporary refuge to be aware, to be open, grounding, resting in pleasant experience. There's a certain 
temporary um, stability and healing that happens when we can do that. But the key will be to notice that it turns out not to be dependable, that at some point the mind gets distracted or the pleasantness shifts and it's no longer pleasant. And so then the mind is dependent on finding another pleasant experience. And oh, and then comes in not so pleasant experience. And then we practice being mindful of it, but we're really waiting for, we're, we're just sort of stabilizing ourselves with the unpleasant, kind of holding out, counting on impermanence for it to go away, right? And then hopefully something more pleasant will arise. And uh, although we have more competence being with our experience of pleasant and unpleasant experience, it's still stressful. We're still managing it, right? Now we have some skill as we're managing it. We know like, oh yeah, this is safe to absorb into. This is pleasant. I'm just going to rest here because it's pleasant. And I can put down doing for a while right? Because it's pleasant, feels good. Oh, this is unpleasant. Okay, I'll be really alert so I'm not reacting to it because that will just make it worse, right? So we have this kind of growing, deepening skill. But if we have a little bit of space around that, we see it's, yeah, it's better to have that skill, but it's still stressful to have to be negotiating the pleasant and unpleasant forever with no end in sight boy, that that's doesn't seem like a refuge. That just seems like a setup. I mean, I'm glad I have the skill I have to know how to be with unpleasant and to know how to take advantage of the pleasant when it comes. But I'm looking for a more profound kind of rest. I mean, that's just true. My mind and my heart, I'm interested in, I intuit the possibility of a more profound release where I don't have to be the one constantly navigating the pleasant and unpleasant experiences in life. Yet, I don't want to be the one that has to leave because that's stressful too. Like, somehow I have to get out of here and not end up in a similar place. Right? That's its own stressful idea. You know, like I see that creeping in my mind every once in a while about like, yeah, I just got to make it until death and then I'll be done. You know, or something like that. I mean, it's sort of a more existential version of getting to the weekend, you know, <laughs> and then I'll be done. Or even to the end of the day, you know, just so I get myself in my bed or something like that. And I don't have to behave or I don't have to do. So that the key is to gain the skill that you're gaining and really recognize but start to recognize as you get more skillful at navigating the pleasant and unpleasant, um, just contemplate how the mind longs for a deeper refuge, a more satisfying, a more complete refuge where there isn't anybody who has to be skillful. As good as it is to be able to be skillful, it would be a real relief, a real release not to have to be skillful. Not to have to be or not to want to be unskillful, right? It's just the relief of not having to be the skillful one. We'd probably remain skillful, right? This activity of the body and mind. But there wouldn't need to be a me who has to be skillful, who's afraid of being unskillful. So this is sort of the middle place in practice where we've gotten, we got some sense of what the Buddha is pointing out. We have a deeper, deepening appreciation of karma, that intentions matter, how we're relating to experience really matters. And so we're in that realm of learning how to relate to experience, the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral. But as we get more sensitive, we realize, yeah, this works so much better and it's stressful to have to be skillful, like I've been saying. Yeah, you want to pass the mic back to John right behind you? Yeah, thank you for the question and the response. It was very helpful. Um, I have a slightly different question. In one of the readings uh, for the course, it said, uh, if I read it right, that 
taking refuge in the Buddha is not taking, not necessarily taking refuge in the man, but in in wisdom. And 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 I think of the sangha. It was not necessarily taking refuge in the group necessarily, but in the virtue of the group. And I wondered if you. Well, we're on the Buddha now, so I wonder if you could comment. Yeah, on we're, no, we're going to cover that territory. So for the last three or four weeks, we'll be because we haven't really up until this point using a more um, traditional Buddhist traditional look at these three refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And I'll just outline it briefly tonight, but I'll talk specifically about the Buddha piece and next week the Dhamma and then the third week from now, uh, Sangha. But no, what you described is a, a useful and traditional way of... And there's always, you know, it's always the case that there's this outer and inner and secret. This is like how it's talked about in the Tibetan tradition, right? So the refuge exists as an outer form. There's this person, you know, and he could do this, and he was just a human being, so maybe we can do this because we're a human being, right? So that's that outer refuge, the fact that somebody else has done this. And not just the Buddha, but many women, men, you know, through the generations have done this. So maybe what they talk about is true. I don't know. But I have some, right? So that, and then the, Inner is like we've now contemplated, we've studied, we've listened to what they did, you know, their words, and we've reflected on it, and we have some internal sense of the possibility, not just external faith because of a story we've heard, but having looked at the nature of our own mind, the nature of our own experience, we have some sense of what might be possible. We, we're not there yet but we have a real, a more real, direct sense of what's possible. And then the secret is having a real taste of the refuge, right? So those three levels, that's a useful, and that's kind of what you were talking about, that the refuges exist on different levels. We need, most of us at least, we need external symbols, you know, stories of people, not necessarily a, a statue, but a statue that represents a story, a compelling story about a, somebody like me doing something that took care of that person's problems, right? The same problems that I'd like to resolve. That, those stories get our attention, right? Like, oh, because it breaks us out of feeling condemned by life or condemned by our circumstances. Any other reflections about the sit tonight first roger and then we'll go to charlie and then to helen and then we'll i'll say a few things so i'm wondering um <coughs> how the concentrated state serves as a refuge because for me it, it feels that way when i develop enough samadhi that it's kind of pervasive and almost like i have a background to a foreground and there's some equanimity with everything. And when I have that, it, it kind of softens things. Um, but at the same, same time, you were saying earlier that, you know, when you're grasping for experiences, and I've, I've heard that's one of the dangers of, you know, jhanas, is that people get attached to them. You know, so I guess I'd like your uh, feedback as to, you know, doing a lot of that kind of practice as, you know, grasping versus refuge. You know. mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's important always, not just for somebody doing jhana practice or deep concentration practice, a real meditation with a real emphasis on absorption and stillness. It's important for all of us, all of the time, to be interested in our motivations, right? So as long as you're interested in your motivations and in particular around your meditation practice, yeah, the Buddha strongly encourages people to explore deeper states of stillness and absorption. And the way it works, like in terms of what we're doing in this fall course, is you do what you can. You, you check your motivation. You see that the motivation is a self-compassion and just a, a pure kind of curiosity about the nature of the mind and what the mind is capable of, right? Those are wholesome motivations. 
that will give the mind enough energy to do the practice, right? And then with enough persistence and good instruction, everybody will make some progress in this direction. Some people will have more of a talent or have more favorable circumstances. Other people might not have a natural talent for deeper states of absorption or life circumstances are not conducive. They have a lot of difficult experience or trauma from the past or they're not that healthy. But if people can drop into those deeper states, then like Roger said, one of the expressions of dropping into a deeper state is a pervasive sense of equanimity. Right, The fourth jhana is really strongly defined by the quality of stillness, peace, and equanimity. So equanimity is the mind, right? Is a mind temporarily absence of craving. So it's like a temporary nibbana, right? Because nibbana, awakening, the mind is awakening to a state of non-craving, right? And full awakening is awakening to a state where there are no latent, tendencies to later crave, right? Can't be triggered, can't be brought up. So anytime the mind is quiet, even if it's just sort of a more ordinary state of quietness, craving has been suppressed. That's sort of, I mean, you can't get quiet and have a mind full of craving, right? So craving, remember, craving is really both aversion and greed, right? It's that wanting things to be different whether it's greed or aversion. So w- when craving is suppressed, right, then things quiet down. So and when you can drop into a more profound state of quiet, then just let it last as long as the mind wants to rest in that space. Let, just let nature take its own course. But as the mind arises out of that quiet place, right, so that craving is no longer being suppressed, then be very interested in the arising of craving. And the way to do that, Roger, is to get interested in the equanimity that was there when craving was suppressed. And then try to sustain the mind's interest on the equanimity, on the being unflappable, unshakable. But now, not because of the suppression of the concentration, But now the mind more and more dependent on wisdom to sustain the equanimity, right? So that's often how the Buddha would teach, get into a really deep state of concentration, and then as it inevitably dissolves and the mind comes back to more ordinary state of consciousness, transition from equanimity that has arisen because the mind had really retreated from the senses, right? So it's in this very quiet place where it's not, being pushed around by sight and sound and thought because the mind in a way has withdrawn from the activity of the six senses. But now the concentration is leaving. The mind's going back into the ordinary world of thinking thoughts, hearing sounds, seeing sights, having sensation, and aware of all that. And so that's going to trigger the tendency to crave, to react, so then the mind is, but the mind is interested in equanimity because it's really touched some profound equanimity. So it's really interested, appropriately interested in how to sustain that, right, in an ordinary state of consciousness. And that's contemplating, I mean, in a way, you could call that contemplating Buddha. Like, Buddha is the, the quality of the mind that remains unmoved, but now in the world, of likes and dislikes in the world of pleasure and pain, not retreated from it. That's like the vipassana side of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So from from samadhi or from samatha to vipassana, that transition out of a deep state into ordinary state is where you practice. Yeah. Thanks, Roger, for bringing that up. So I think Charlie was next. The the instruction that we're using has been really useful in a different way. Um, I've really needed to practice the jhanas because this heart and mind have had a lot of, you know, anxiety and trauma, and there's a lot of momentum to that. And so I regard kind of what we're doing as sort of a different kind of building of faith. And um, like the refuges are, for me, are like a different kind of faith. And 
it was it's easy for me to see how the jhanas are addictive, but yet and so it's great because it's self-correcting because I see the attachment arises when I'm practicing with the jhanas. Well, the instruction that you've been using is different. It's for me. It's kind of like you know the way that a plane works. You know when it's it's guided, it goes on a course. It's kind of going off, and veering, and then it periodically locks onto the target again so it goes back and so when you give the instruction that says you know is this a refuge towards refuge or away from refuge that works really well for me because um, I can feel oh there's craving again up oh, there's aversion you know and no this isn't towards a refuge and so it like and what it seems to keep pointing out again is equanimity or not equanimity you know and but but more as a felt experience, more as like a direct wisdom experience, just because I've answered the question, oh, how does this feel? So yeah, it feels like it, it points straight to the experiential part, like a wisdom, like an experience. Yeah. Because we want that wisdom of equanimity, and we, we don't want it, it's as nice as it is to touch it in a quiet set, we really want it all the time. Right, don't we? We want that we want to be able to show up in life and all its complexity, all of its beauty and difficulty, and we would like to be able to remain undisturbed as we do whatever needs to be done in life. Right? To be able to be real and intimate, you know, engaged appropriately, but not burdened by what's coming and going. There's a great line, um, from the, um, uh, somehow it's associated with Kuan Yin, this teaching. See, the winds of circumstance, right? The winds of this and that. The winds of circumstance blow through emptiness. Whom can they harm? Right? So we see our life blowing through, moving through the 10,000 joys and sorrows. But this movement is empty of something, right? Last week, I think I, oh no, it was in the weekly practice groups, I was quoting uh, Ananda asked the Buddha, for those who have been coming to the weekly practice groups, Ananda asked the Buddha after he had given a talk on emptiness, you know, you say, you, you said something about the world being empty. What were you talking about? And so the Buddha said, well, Ananda, the world is empty of self and what belongs to the self, right? So this is this equanimity. What we're looking at, you know, the Buddha as a refuge is really that understanding, like understanding what's not here. This moment is empty of self and what belongs to self because all of that are constructions in the mind. And so when we can observe the moment without being confused by any of those self-constructions, the ideas of self, of me and mine, this and that, in a personal sense, then we don't really have a problem going, being blown this way and that way, or life, you know, taking lefts and rights, pleasant times, difficult times. So this is how the equanimity that comes from being withdrawn or like back to Claire's comment, you know, when there's pleasant experience, we can get some real peace by tuning into the pleasantness. Like that's why we like sunsets or that's why we like it when the body feels really light and energetic in a meditation because the pleasantness of that bodily, that light feeling in the body, that energetic quality in the body is a samadhi object, right? the attention attends to that pleasant experience and for a while the mind is distant from everything else. Precisely because it's just attending to this pleasant experience, it doesn't feel pushed around by anything else for a while. It doesn't care what President Trump or other politicians are doing or doesn't care about you know, our financial situation or our aging process or other things that are disturbing for the mind. It has some freedom until that connection, that samadhi, eventually falls away. And then there can be longing, right? So to understand, both not just in words, but to really observe 
the moments at the beginning of the sit when you're interested in developing deeper states of concentration and moments at the end of the sit to really observe the motivations because it's really good work and it will happen best if as we're doing that work we're purifying our motivations for doing that work which is not for a temporary nice feeling but for the support for a support for understanding what can be understood right that's really the reason for the work remember at the time i mean at least as the stories go they were teaching this concentration practice even before the time of the buddha right his early teachers after he left his home he studied with people who really understood the jhanas the deeper states of absorption or deeper states of concentration and the buddha mastered them according to the stories and uh they the teachers asked him to stay and teach with them right so they had the, they acknowledged that he had sort of reached the same skill level as they had but the buddha wasn't interested because he realized as nice as those states were they end right and then he hadn't uprooted the capacity to be a suffering human being and that's what he was interested in putting an end to helen you were going to go next i think okay well maybe i'll say a few things then if that's okay anybody really needs to ask a question take the last 20 minutes and just say a few things about buddha and um one of the important things here especially with this first refuge is um yeah don't worry about grasping it like okay this is what the buddha meant by buddha i mean if you're going to grasp something something then grasp one of the stories you know some saint some person whether it's the buddha or another person you know deepama is a little closer some of these people who we have a sense of having deep understanding deep freedom right we're not that far removed right we can hear a talk by joseph or sharon or other people who studied with deepama and uh and so oh, i know them they knew her right and and we get a sense like oh yeah so uneducated person devoted came to deep understanding lots of people who i have a lot of respect for totally respect this person okay maybe it's possible right so what was that or maybe you've run into people that just who they are how they are is sort of the vibe of the way they are in their life the way they're living their life the absence of pretense the absence of you know relative absence of self-consciousness relative release of their mind and body and you you don't you know we don't need to know are they fully awake or are they da, 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 da. all we know is like there's something about them that is attractive right i want what they have we feel that sometimes when we're around people so we have these external symbols in our life hopefully and the point of those external symbols is for us you know to encourage us enough to listen and study and reflect on like they're pointing out instructions like somebody has asked them so what did you do <laughs> you know what happened to you you know and they took notes and passed them along and now oh this is what the buddha did right and the question is what are we going to do with those pointing out instructions we could put them in a golden box and every day bow down to it these are the instructions of the buddha and we might get a little high in, in a kind of a meditation sense a concentration sense because ritual is a sort of concentration practice that's why in so many religious traditions they have a lot of ritual chanting singing you know other kinds other forms of ritual because it can when you're doing it and when you have the idea that this is really important this is really sacred then you don't let your mind wander about you know what did that person say because that would be like blasphemy 
So you, you kind of get really concentrated with ritual and chanting and other sort of devotional patterns. But in our practice, because you know, one of the most important pointing out instructions that we get right from the start is the whole path is about a transformation of understanding. So generally, in when you not not generally in the Buddhist tradition, but generally when you look at the teachings of this person, the Buddha, there's not much emphasis on ritual, very little. Because the person, the Buddha, talked about the catalyst for change has to do with practices that shift one's understanding. Now, it can, you know, starting to bow could be for some people a support in shifting understanding. So I'm not, I don't want to boo-hoo routines or rituals. We do have a ritual, you know, like sitting still for an hour every day or something like that. That's a useful ritual. But the point is to, in that form, you know, the one ritual that we are generally pretty devoted to, sitting meditation, and then we got this information and we combine those two things. We sit down in a quiet place and we bring up some information, whether it's information about quieting the mind or information about reflecting on the nature of the mind or information on how to relate to hindrances. And then, but the idea of all these stages, you know, the external, the internal, and the secret or the sacred, we have to have a sense of direction. So we can't really do the practice without, it's like you can't put off being curious about what is the Buddha as a refuge. Because it, it will affect how you relate to the statues and the stories. Right? If you don't have some intuitive sense about a peace that's here and now, and can't be stained, can't be ruined, right? then you won't know what to do with the story and you won't have the right barometer when you start to actually reflect, you know, do your sitting practice. Your intuition about what Buddha points to, you know, the concept Buddha points to a refuge, you won't, we won't have perfect knowledge or experience of it, but we just it just needs to be good enough. It's like when you're hiking, <coughs> you know, mostly what we're doing is putting one foot in front of the other and <coughs> and looking right down there and, and making sure we're not going to trip on something. <coughs> but we also have to have some sense of where we're going. You know, so every once in a while we check the map, or every once in a while, you know, when there's a clear view. You know, we're up on a rise or something, or even, you know, sometimes you have to climb a tree and just kind of get a sense, oh yeah, I'm going, there's the peak, you know, that we're going to climb, or that's the ridge, you know, that's the pass that we need to go through, or that's the lake we're after. And then, you know, then we're back in the bush, and the, under the trees, and we're just making sure we're not tripping over the roots and, you know, not going to hit our head on something, and we're just doing the grind of our practice. But it doesn't matter how persistent we are with the practice if we don't have some intuition about where we're going. And to some degree, you know, you can be somewhat dependent on your teachers and the community. I trust the teachings. But at some point, it has to become more and more independent. Where you're less and less dependent on, I mean, you still might be hearing what teachers say or reading what teachers say, so-called teachers say, but you're always now filtering it through your own understanding, your own experience, your own intuition about your refuge, about what freedom is. And yeah, you might be tweaking, oh yeah, you know, shifting it around, refining what it is based on what you're studying, but mostly studying is helping you practice and the practice is helping you to refine the peace that we seek.
the release that we seek. So in this sense, then, Buddha is the goal, right? As a refuge, Buddha is the goal. And it doesn't matter how faint it is in the present moment. Like part of the information we're given that is very useful is that it's here and now. Because if we don't keep that in mind, we'll pursue Nibbana or awakening as if it's a kind of heaven that I'm going to get to. Right? And it can, it can create a lot of misdirection in how we practice, how we do our practice. So I thought next week in the small groups, you know, we'll, I'll say a little bit more about Buddha next week, but uh, to talk about how Buddha and Dhamma work together, and I think I might have mentioned this early on, but many of you have heard me talk about the refuges and other settings. So Buddha, this awakened, open, unstainable quality, that's here and now. The great thing about Buddha is it knows how to be intimate, knows how to connect with Dhamma, what's showing up in the moment, what comes and goes, the 10,000 joys and sorrows or the eight worldly winds of gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and praise and blame. Right? It's Buddha that isn't afraid of Dhamma, It's Buddha that doesn't need to control circumstances. It's Buddha that knows how to be loving and engaged, knows how to be skillful. So I thought for the small groups next week, one thing you might share is like this intersection of Buddha and Dhamma. How in moments, probably just faint moments or simple moments, short moments, whatever, in moments when the heart felt relatively empty of distraction, relatively empty of the hindrances of greed and delusion and anger and sleepiness and dullness and restlessness and doubt, right? So balanced. And the mind, so empty of a lot of stuff, a lot of selfing stuff, And how that mind, whatever happened to show up, whether that was a challenging moment or a beautiful moment, how the mind was able to connect, able to be intimate. And then just a little preview, right? And so then the response would be Sangha. So Buddha is the awakened quality, the open, empty quality of the mind. The mind that can include everything. And what does it include? Well, it includes whatever's happening, whatever's coming and going, whatever's showing up. And in that marriage, in that connection, a beautiful, appropriate response. We say the right thing. We do the right thing. We hold back in the right way. Precisely because Buddha's knowing Dhamma. The mind is intimate without anything being fixed without anything being held in the moment. So you can just look this week because part of the instructions, you know, we're getting is like study this here and now, not theoretically or not even, I mean, it's okay, of course, to reflect on things that happened, the special moments that happened 10 years ago or five years ago, whatever. But it's much more relevant to track your experience during the day like Buddha knowing Dhamma and little moments of Sangha you know enlightened activity beautiful engagement appropriate responding that just happen not you doing it even right just sort of like an appropriate response happened and you one of the telltale telltale signs of that is you have a lot of appreciation for what just happened. But there's no pride. It's not like egoic. It's like an ego trip. It was just a beautiful thing. And it doesn't really matter that 
you were the one who said that or didn't say something or did something or didn't do something. It was just a skillful response. In the same way you, you would have you appreciated somebody else doing it, you appreciate yourself. And, and it's just as relevant, of course, to observe this in other people. So this could be something you share in a small group too. You, maybe you notice somebody else that just seems to be Buddha meeting the present moment, Dhamma, expressing Sangha, right? And then you can share a moment like that, like how that appeared to you as an observer, right? Because that can be quite inspiring when you see that. When you see that kind of nimbleness and lightness and creativity, but without anybody trying to do it or needing to do it or needing to be recognized for having done it or anything sticky like that. Really beautiful thing. Another thing that might seem relevant in uh, sharing next week is just, in terms of Buddha in particular, is just mystery. And you know, you can <clears throat> just have a sense in your life, present and past, where a very strong sense of meeting the mystery. Because, you know, one way to reflect on the Buddha is like what we're opening to, like in the guided meditation we did tonight, is something that is not conceived. And the thing is, it's, you might think this would be easy to avoid, but it's not. Because thoughts have power to them. And the more sublime and beautiful thoughts have more power. So we can be quite seduced by our thoughts of Buddha, thoughts of emptiness, thoughts of love, whatever kind of thoughts we have. Thoughts have a certain power because they represent, they point to something sometimes and they get some borrowed power from what they might be pointing to or what they might represent to the mind. But the thought will never be the thing itself. There will always be a misdirection. So that's like a pointing out instruction. If you can conceive of it, if you can grasp it as a concept, as a thought, that's not it. You know, so a, a sublime thought about peace, about kind of universal love, a sense of unity, the idea of unity. If it can be grasped, if the mind can attach to it, it's not Buddha. So Buddha is ungraspable. It can't be conceived of. Or whatever the conception is, it's it's not that. So we have to be content in the non grasping it's almost like that thing, you know, a lot of us did when we were teenagers, when you're trying to build community, you know, and your friends are behind you and you just have to fall back. It's a little bit like that, like it's here and now, but as long as I'm trying to find it, I'm grasping. So it's like, because we know it can't be grasped, then that, that helps us do the contemplation. Well, because although it can't be grasped, we can practice, we, meaning you know me, the ego who's practicing, I can practice not grasping. Right? I can tr- practice or try or learn how to relax. That's why you heard me say that word 20 or 30 times during the guided meditation, you know, relax. Because trying doesn't make Buddha Buddha. You don't have to try, trying... All that the trying will do is create an obscuration where you'll miss what's here and now because the trying disturbs the mind. It reinforces the idea of something separate trying to get back home. Something that's apart, something that's neurotic, wanting to get fixed. So the way we find Buddha is not doing those self-trips. Now, this is different than a lot of the way we meditate. So it's okay. There are a lot of different ways to meditate. So this way of meditating, in a way, is is basically uh, like contemplating the Buddha. We're really contemplating safety 
It's like, it's already safe. It's already okay. You know, and I'll prove it. Because I'm just going to stop doing. I'm going to stop trying to make it safe and okay. I'm just going to, you know, rest back in the faith that it's already okay. That whatever Buddha is, whatever that word points to, that it's here and now. So that's what I would recommend, not forever, but for this week, right? And then now, those of you who are reading Tara's book, <coughs> hopefully you figured this out, but Tara puts Buddha at the end. Normally, you know, we have Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha in the traditional order. I think she mentions this in the, maybe the introduction. But, uh, and she uses awareness as synonymous with the refuge of Buddha. And if you're reading um, Ajahn Tanisaro's book, he has it in a, the traditional order. So Buddha is near the front of the book after the introduction, I think. Good. Any questions before we end our evening? We have just a minute or two. Yeah, Raha. Thanks. I don't know where I have heard this, but um, I think somewhere they mentioned one of the characteristics of um, right action or sangha, the right reaction to the dhamma or the event would be, I think they, they were mentioning like law of, one of the laws of action was not to resist and not to persist. So it's not passivity, but I was wondering if this is something that you have mentioned maybe. It's like almost being okay with what, what there is. So even if you planned a big party and things are not going your way, don't insist on exactly your way. Mm-hmm. Let go of, let be with the flow. Yeah. That usually turn out to be one of the best reactions. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of beautiful poetic images for Sangha because it's not just Buddha that can't quite be captured in words, all three of these refuges. But yeah, th- there's something about being in this very energized, alert, awake state, really ready for action, but not dependent on acting, right? So, you know, we have these images like in the same way that a leaf this time of year gets blown off of a tree, how it naturally finds its way to the ground. You know, the idea is (coughs) that our engagement, all the forces that are needed for us to do Tuesday tomorrow, they're all there. So... We just need to trust those forces. And our work really is to stay right in the middle, to stay intimate, because then the way that leaf is going to get blown around tomorrow will be coming out of being intimate, being connected with what's happening. And the danger would be to be disconnected. And the only way we can be disconnected, because we're just nature, So the only way as nature we can be disconnected is when this part of the mind gets identified with a thought, a fixed view, right? Then the way that leaf blows is different. And suffering can be set in motion. And that we directly experience. When there are fixed views, when there's attachment, we're still just nature happening. But that nature has the subjective experience of suffering. And when we're just a leaf getting blown and the mind knows that, not conceptually, but is that, maybe is a better way of saying that, then still just nature happening, but there's no suffering. And that's the difference. Thanks, Raha, for bringing that up. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.